Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about French art and culture. If you're joining me for the first time, I've been on hiatus for the past three weeks after wrapping up my series on the Dreyfus Affair and taking what I consider to be a very well-earned birthday vacation to Bali. I'll keep these episodes short and sweet for the rest of the year so that you and I can spend all of our time enjoying the holidays and drinking mulled wine all day the way the French are doing right now. But while I was gone, the land of desire crossed a huge milestone, 100,000 downloads. Considering this show only launched five months ago, this is mind-blowing to me, and I wanted to celebrate with a special episode. Most of you live in the United States, which makes sense not only because I'm based in the United States, but also because Americans have always been fascinated by France, Paris in particular. Some of those Americans take the leap buy a ticket, cross the sea, and move to France for good. How many Americans are currently living in France? That's right, you guessed it. It's about 100,000. In fact, without the first American expats in Paris, the United States wouldn't exist at all. So today, to celebrate the number 100,000, Let's spend a few brief moments appreciating America's debt to France, as well as one of the quirkier means by which America has attempted to repay its debt to France. As anyone who remembers high school history class could tell you, the United States of America would not exist without France. End of story. Without French ships and, more importantly, French money, the revolutionaries would have been beaten by the British, and the American Revolution would be little more than a sad footnote in history. For most of the Revolutionary War, the fledgling United States relied on two emissaries to keep the alliance strong, Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. Most people already know about Benjamin Franklin's time in France. He loved wine, he loved women, and so it comes as no surprise then that he loved Paris. Paris loved him back. They loved Benjamin Franklin's jokes, they loved his scientific experiments, and they really loved his efforts to fight back against their mortal enemies, the British. Throughout the war, Benjamin Franklin secured just about everything his fellow American soldiers needed back home, including over $2 million in French loans, not including ships, guns, food, and more. Throughout the war, France was happy to foot the bill, so happy, in fact, that they bankrupted themselves just a few years later, which set off a revolution of their own. Meanwhile, however, John Adams wasn't having nearly as much fun. His journey to France was a disaster right from the start, which was a long voyage at sea, mostly spent trying to keep his son, a 10-year-old John Quincy Adams, from getting swept overboard during a terrible storm. 
When they weren't facing lightning strikes, they were busy being chased by British ships. Six weeks later, John Adams arrived to France, as so many other Americans have done since, exhausted, nervous, and unable to speak a word of French. Needless to say, the French soon hated him, and the feeling was mutual. They thought he was an uptight stuffed shirt. He thought they were a bunch of lazy, lousy aristocrats. Benjamin Franklin groaned and held his face in his hands at John Adams just about once a week, and everybody just tried to figure out how to just keep the narc away from the party, you know. Meanwhile, Benjamin Franklin kept securing loan after loan from the French government, just so long as he promised not to bring that annoying nerd with him to the official parties. But a few years later. After France had kicked off a revolution of her own, it turned out that alienating grumpy John Adams was a bad idea, because as delightful as Benjamin Franklin might have been at parties, he was never actually president. Instead, grumpy John Adams took a break from moving into his new office called the White House, and he said, "Oh, oh, I'm sorry. We only owed money to the French king." No idea who you guys are. Bye. That was a bit of a bad idea because the other thing that John Adams had been working on as president when he wasn't watching the fresh paint dry in the Oval Office, dismantling and selling the American Navy to pay off debts. Oops. So now an angry France starts capturing American merchant ships, like almost all of them. John Adams told France, "Hey." Knock it off, and France replied, "Yeah, you and what navy?" So for the next two years, America and France engaged in basically a seafaring slap fight. They never quite came out and declared war, but they were definitely not trading friendship bracelets at recess either. The reason you've never heard of this quasi-war with France is because it's boring. But the Quasi War does have two important footnotes for history. First footnote: the United States doesn't owe money to France anymore. Second footnote: in the most absurd moment of an absurd war, a farmer from Pennsylvania named George Logan took it upon himself to fix things up. George Logan was the equivalent of your crazy grandpa who yells at the news every night about how, if it were up to him, he'd make those bums sit down and figure it out already. Except that, unlike your grandpa, George Logan really did sail to Paris and sit down with a room of very amused French diplomats. The trip wasn't actually as much of a diplomatic disaster as you might have predicted. But when George Logan returned home, the United States Congress very quickly passed a law called the Logan Act, which says only diplomats can be diplomats. Thank you very much. Sorry, crazy grandpa. The Logan Act is still in effect today. As it turns out, only a few cases of a Logan Act violation appear in American history. One such violation occurred in 1968 when a Republican fundraiser named Anna Chenault got on the phone with the South Vietnamese government. "Don't engage with peace talks with Lyndon B. Johnson," she told them. "You'll do better under Richard Nixon once he's elected." Oddly enough, 
Anna Chenault was never convicted of blatantly violating the Logan Act. And I'm going to assume that's because Richard Nixon was, after all, elected. While South Vietnam may have expected to benefit from Richard Nixon's election, his administration actually turned out to be a windfall for an entirely different country as well. On May 21, 1987, the nation of France paid tribute to Richard Nixon because it was during his years in office that Nixon oversaw the passage of a very important piece of legislation with very unintended consequences. In 1969, for the first time, Americans could claim charitable donations as tax deductions. This tiny little insertion to the American tax code unleashed an enormous wave of charitable giving. And as it turned out, a staggering percentage of that wave went to France. At the time of Nixon's tribute in 1987, American investors had just finished financing the restoration of Versailles. Nearer and dearer to my heart, American donations almost single-handedly financed the transformation of Claude Monet's incredible home in Giverny into a public museum at a cost of over $7 million. One American fundraising organization, the French Heritage Society, has raised over $10 million in order to restore nearly 400 projects. Meanwhile, tax write-offs make for strange corporate bedfellows as well, American Express helped finance the restoration of the Fortress of Mont-Saint-Michel, and IBM poured money into a bunch of neglected medieval towers. Whatever gets your tax write-offs up, I guess. Later on that evening, nervous French officials tried to stir up American interest in the Arc de Triomphe, which in 1987 was literally falling apart held together with netting to keep chunks of it from crashing down on tourists. For those of you planning a trip anytime soon, don't worry, the evening was a success and the Ark is safe and sound again. One can only imagine grumpy John Adams rolling over in his grave at the thought that another American president actually made it easier than ever for Americans to divert their money from their own government into that of France. In 1776, just a few months after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin became perhaps the first true American expat living in France. With over 100,000 American expats residing there today, mostly clustered together in Paris, Franco-American relations are a two-way boulevard. For those who can't afford a full-time apartment in Paris, Charities and Friendship Society fundraisers offer Americans another way to give back. And as for the rest of those Americans who love France and her history and culture, why, they listen to French history podcasts, of course. So thank you again for listening to The Land of Desire. My name's Diana, and this is a one-woman show. I write, research, and produce every episode. You can check out the show's website, which includes lots of supplementary material, at www.thelandofdesire.com or follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a moment, 
please take time to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a review. Finally, if you love the show, please tell your friends. Spread the word on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, forward it to your friends who put Eiffel Tower charms on their keychains. Let the world know. Thanks for listening and look for the next episode in two weeks. Until then, au revoir!